please remain standing for the reading of God's word. As a reminder, we stand out of reverence and awe for God and for his word. Well, this is awkward. I'm sorry I walked up here a little too early. Um, because I, I, uh, I, I'm going to introduce, actually, Keith, who's um, preaching. Uh, and you wait, though. Liz is going to go before. And then, um, but yeah, so I'm sorry that's on me. Messed it up. I'll own it. There's no... <laughs> But um, so remain standing, though, right? Shake out your legs if you want. Um, but uh, Keith McMillan, who is a uh, pastoral resident here at our at our church, is um is 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 preaching uh, this evening, and uh, I'm really excited for Keith to to uh, share with us on this Palm Sunday. He's an incredible communicator of God's word. I've gotten to know him and his family for a long, long time, even before they were a family. And, uh, and just excited for us as a church to have them here as a, as a part of our, of our family and also to hear from him uh, this Sunday. So um, after Liz says, this is the word of the Lord, please be seated, we can all clap and welcome Keith up. So thank you for your grace. Uh, and now let me introduce Liz Sang to read God's word for us. Uh, today's scripture reading is John chapter 9, verses 24 through 34. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thanks. Well, good afternoon, everybody. I was hoping Marcus would have softened you guys up for that. Uh, good morning to those of you who are watching online. Just making a little... Is that good? All right. Uh, like Dave said, my name is Keith McMillan. I'm a pastoral resident here uh, at this congregation, Redemption Tucson. Um, I'm so excited to get to meet all of you. Uh, I've met quite a few of you, but... I basically just recognize you by the mask that you regularly wear, not by your face. But um, my wife and kids are here. They're in the overflow room. I'm glad because you would have all turned and looked at them, and that would have embarrassed her. Um, Desiree, and then my three boys, Alistair, who's six, Arlo, who's four, and Montgomery, who's almost two, but he thinks he's like six. Um, we just moved to Tucson. We're brand new to the town, um, and we like it. <laughs> I feel like that's the disclaimer, the next thing I have to say. And we like Tucson. We're happy to be here. Um, we spent the last... This is driving me nuts. 
Is that, that, that's better. Okay. We spent the last 11 years, it is not better, the last 11 years uh, in full-time ministry, we just celebrated actually our, uh, our 11th anniversary, wedding anniversary, this past week. Should I just use a handheld? Check, check. Oh, that is so much better. <laughs> okay. We just, uh, we just moved here in December. Uh, the last 11 years, we've been in full-time ministry with a different organization, an organization called Crew, which I know some of you have been connected to. It's a campus ministry. Um, seven of those 11 years, we spent at Arizona State University. Never heard of it. Never. <laughs> I was wondering if I'd get a boo or something, but... Um, for about half that time, uh, I was serving as the team leader for the Phoenix metro area, um, a job similar to what Emily's got right here in Tucson. Um, I, we are from, originally, we're from Sacramento. Uh, when the Lord called us into full-time ministry, uh, we didn't imagine that we'd be on staff with crew for over a decade. In fact, when we first joined with Crew, we thought it was a one- or two-year thing, and then we would end up in a local congregation setting. We would end up where I would be serving as a pastor. But each time we prayed, each time we asked for the Lord to release us from the calling to Crew, he kept saying, stay, stay, stay. And then one or two years turned into three or four years, turned into five or six, turned into over a decade. But the call changed this past summer, and that's why we're here. In uh, this past summer, the Lord said, I release you from your calling to campus ministry. Now is the time. And so we picked up and we moved. Dave made the, the opportunity available for me to continue my residency, which I started at Redemption Tempe, uh, to continue it here at Redemption Tucson as a full-time member of the staff team. So happy to be here. Um, we are, like I said, originally from Sacramento. We actually, Desiree and I met in high school. We're high school sweethearts. Um, and we went to the same the same uh, university, it's called University of California, Davis, which is where we met the Goffneys and Annie Prentice back there. Um, when I, I was an engineering student uh, at UC Davis, and I remember one day I was late to a class. That's totally relatable, I'm sure, for a lot of you uh, who have been in college or some of you who are in college now. I was late, I was running late for a class, and I remember walking into the lecture hall. It was a physics lecture. And if you've ever done this with church where you walk in and you look around and there's no seats and you're like, am I going to have to sit there? That was what I was thinking when I came in. But fortunately, by God's grace, there was a seat right in the back between two people. And so I sat down in the back and I remember looking up at the board and uh, seeing just like these in unintelligible scribbles up on the board. And I was like, you know, I'm cracking a joke to the person next to me. I'm like, hey, what's up with this guy? Like, you know, they don't even require handwriting proficiency for, like, being a professor at UC Davis. Like, what's he trying to do? Write us, like, a prescription or something? Like, what's going on here? And the person sitting next to me was like, I can see perfectly fine. <laughs> and then I kind of, like, looked to the person over here, and they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The problem was not with the handwriting. The problem was that I couldn't see. The problem was that I needed glasses, right? And that was the first time that it dawned on me. Well, as I reflect even on my own story of coming to faith in Jesus, walking with Jesus, it's, it's uh, the things that are obvious to me now as a believer were not obvious to me before I came to faith in Jesus. I couldn't see that I needed him. I couldn't see that I needed redemption, that I needed rescuing. I couldn't see that he was beautiful I couldn't see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
And worse than just needing some corrective vision, right, to my religious worldview, I actually was totally blind. I didn't just need glasses, I needed healing. The passage that we're looking at today is about the inability to see. Both physically, Jesus encounters a blind man, but also, even more importantly, the inability to see spiritually. So I'm going to pray, and I'm going to invite us to come to the scriptures, but as I pray, I want you to take a moment to invite the living Christ to encounter you. We're not just doing an intellectual exercise here. I'm not coming up here to teach you like that professor of physics. We want to encounter Christ as we sit here. So I'm going to pray, and you focus on the presence of Christ here with us now. Lord Jesus, as we see uh, in Scripture time and time again that you are the one who initiates, you are the one who comes to people who are hurting, we pray that we would remember even now that you are here. As we encounter a story about you, we pray that we would have an encounter with you, Jesus. So come now, speak through me, speak through these scriptures, speak through the story, and encounter us where we're at. We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, the passage that we're looking at today, if you have your Bible, is John chapter 9. I was merciful to Liz and didn't have her read the entire chapter, although uh, we could have done like an interpretive dance or something, right, to like do all 41 verses. That would have been interesting. She's like, no. Um, So bear with me. I'm going to kind of summarize and jump around a little bit, but we're going to start right in verse 1. So... John chapter 9, verse 1. As he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So here's the picture. Jesus and his disciples are walking past, and there's a blind beggar on the side of the road. He's maybe holding out a cup or a sign. This man is a fixture. He's been here. People recognize him or they don't recognize him, right? They walk right past him. In fact, that's what the disciples do. But Jesus stops. Jesus sees him, and Jesus starts engaging with him. Well, the disciples, being the smart fellows that they are, they turn around and they say, you kind of think, maybe this is time for a theological object lesson, right? Hey, Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus, being Jesus, refuses to engage that question on their question's terms, right? He says, well, rather than focusing on the past of why this man was born blind, I actually want to turn your eyes to the future. See, rather than talking about what sin caused this man being born blind, I want to look at what I have chosen him for. I have chosen this man that the works of God might be on display in his life. I have selected this man that he might be an instrument of my mercy and my glory to the world. They turn his eyes, turn their eyes from the past to the future. And then he says this statement that he said earlier in the book. He says, I am the light of the world. Now, darkness and light is a common theme in the book of John, and I want to shift your mindset from kind of Star Wars thinking about darkness and light. It's not good and evil. He's, this is a sight metaphor. He says the world is dark. It's a dark place where people can't see, but I am the light of the world. And after he says that statement and repeats it, in verse 6, he says this. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam which John so helpfully tells us means sent. 
So he went and washed and came back seeing. So Jesus does this weird thing where he gets down on the ground, he spits in the dirt, he mixes it around, and then it says he anoints the man's eyes with the mud. Now, anointing has kind of a twofold meaning in the Old Testament. There's kind of a healing meaning for anointing. It means kind of like medicinal oil or something, right? But then there's another meaning to anointing, and that meaning is choosing, God's selecting for a special purpose, right? So prophets and priests and kings were often anointed before being called into service. And so Jesus takes the mud, and it says he anoints the man. And in case we're confused which kind of anointing this is, John helpfully tells us what? He washes in the pool called scent. Scent. And it says that he goes under the water, and he comes back up, and he can see. Now, interestingly, uh, Jesus and the disciples are not on the scene, really, for most of the rest of the chapter. It turns the attention to the blind man interacting with different people. So the neighbors then see that this man can see. Okay? And the neighbors uh, start arguing about whether this is even the same man. Um, they so, they've noticed him so infrequently that they don't even recognize his face. They walk past him so frequently without even looking at him they, they can't tell it's the same man. The man is insisting. He's waving his arms. It's me. It's me. It's Larry. I'm always here, right? Like, you guys know me. Come on. But they must be thinking something because even as we talk about Hosanna and this eager expectation that God was coming to deliver, there's a passage that must have been ringing through their minds. Isaiah chapter 35 Isaiah chapter 35 uh, says of the day when God comes to rule and reign finally and fully over the creation, it says, in that day, the blind will have their eyes opened. In that day, the deaf will have their ears unstopped, the mute will shout for joy, the lame will leap like a deer, and deserts will be flowing with springs of living water. Jesus has already used some of this imagery. So the neighbors see this man who was born blind, who now can see, and they're thinking, is this the time? Is Isaiah 35 here? Is the Messiah here? Okay? So this is a religious question at its heart, and they want to take it to the religious rulers so that they can make a ruling, right? And so they bring the blind man who now can see to the religious leaders, the Pharisees. And the Pharisees start a trial. They put Jesus on trial, and the first witness is the man. Well, why are they so mad at Jesus? Well, it turns out Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath. Again, right? It seems like this is a theme that keeps coming up for Jesus. He heals people on the Sabbath. Well, why does he do that? If he knows it's against the rules, right, that the Pharisees made up, why, why does he keep doing that? Well, either Jesus keeps forgetting what day it is, right, and he's just kind of like, oh, hum, ho, well, you know, I'll heal you. Shoot, it was the Sabbath, dang it, you know? Or there's an intentionality to the reason, right? Why is he choosing to heal on the Sabbath? My family and I, uh, each week, we celebrate the Sabbath. Uh, it is a, it's a, it's a, just a cherished tradition in our household. We, we get candles out. We light them before Sabbath dinner. And then we start asking questions. We say, okay, so for six days, what do we do? And then the boys say, we work. You know, and they don't work, obviously. But <laughs> for six days, we work, right? And for one day, what do we do? We stop work. We stop, right? That's Sabbath. And I say, why do we stop work? And they say, because God works on that day. Right? So for six days we work, and then everybody shuts down. That's what happened in the Old Testament. Everybody shuts down for Sabbath so that we can remember God is in control, God is working. So no one works on the Sabbath because God works on the Sabbath. 
So Jesus is out here, and he's either ho-hum-ho, or Jesus heals on the Sabbath. Only God heals on the Sabbath. Only God works on the Sabbath. So you can see the Pharisees are upset. He's making a claim about himself by continuously, obstinately even, working on the Sabbath, the day when only God works, right? All right, so they put him on trial. They, they bring up the first witness. It's the man himself. They say, hey, what happened? He says, Jesus put mud on my eyes, and then I washed in this pool, and now I can see. Well, who do you say this man is? And, and then the man says, I say that he's a prophet. He's clearly sent by God. Only someone sent by God could do something like this. So then they say, forget it. You know, We're going to bring in somebody who really knows what they're talking about. They bring in his parents. Okay, They can settle the debate of whether this man was actually truly born blind or not, or if he's a fraud. So they bring in the parents. And remember the question that the disciples asked at the beginning? Who sinned, this man or that he was born blind? This man or his parents? So imagine what his parents uh, culturally conditioned to be utterly, completely ashamed of their son. Imagine them coming in. See, everybody looks at the parents and they see the blind man. They see the sin that caused that blindness, right? That's the cultural setting. So they come in and it's, it's reasonable that they're like, hey, listen, yeah, he was born blind, but ask him. He's of age. Ask him what happened. Because they're just dripping with cultural shame and pressure. Everyone looks at them and says, what atrocious thing did you do that caused your son to be born blind? So they just, they dip out. And then they bring the blind man, or formerly blind man, back in for his second time on the stand. Pick up with me at verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. Translation, like, we already know the answer to this. Like, just tell us what we want to hear. Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, I was blind, and now I see. And then they ask him again what, what he did to them, uh, did to the man that he can see. Uh, and he answered, I've already told you, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? <laughs> so the man speaks I want you to notice he speaks out of his encounter with Christ. He doesn't, his testimony isn't based on theology. It's based on what Jesus did for him, what he can experience, and what, what was reality for him. He was blind. He had an encounter with Jesus. Now he can see, okay? And the question that he asks there is either comedic genius, right? Because obviously the Pharisees don't want to become disciples of Jesus, right? Like, he probably knew that, I'm assuming, but I like to think of it more or less, not that he, the man is like a comedian here. I like to think of it as this man is actually an evangelist. This man is asking a genuine question. He's had a real encounter with Jesus that's transformed everything about him. And he says, do you want to become his disciples too? Do you want to become his disciples too? And of course, they react the way that you would think based on the previous stories in John, they scoff at him. They say, hey, listen, we're, we don't want to be disciples of this man. We're disciples of Moses. We don't even know where this Jesus guy comes from. Now listen to this defense that the man gives in verse 30. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. 
never since the world began. Let that sink in. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. It's obviously a very sad response that they have to him, but his defense is brilliant. See, he goes back to Isaiah 35, right? No one since the beginning of time has ever opened the eyes of a blind man. Isaiah 35 says, in that day when God comes to rule over his creation again, the the eyes of the blind will be opened. So they're faced with a reality here. They have to make a choice. Either the day is here and Messiah has come, or they have to dismiss him and insult him. They have no, there's nothing else, right? That's the only option, right? And so they opt for number two. They dismiss him. They scoff at him. In fact, it says they cast him out, which probably indicates that they excommunicated him from his community of faith there, the synagogue. But Jesus, the only person in the story who sees this man, Jesus, he sees him, he seeks him out, and he finds him. Read with me at verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? That's another way to say the Messiah, the one who is to come, the king that's coming to restore God's rule over the earth. Do you believe in him, the Son of Man? The blind man answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus sees him, he seeks him out, he finds him. And he finishes what he started, right? He heals him physically, but now he heals him spiritually. He gives him eyes to see, and he answers the question the man has. Who is the son of man that I might believe in him? And the man responds the only proper way he knows how to. The Pharisees respond in insult. The man responds in worship. He says, I believe, and he worships Jesus. And then the passage closes with kind of this ominous warning. Jesus uh, has this interaction with the Pharisees where they say, are we blind too? And he says, I came to give the blind sight and that those who see would become blind. And he says, because you say, we see, we see, your guilt remains on you, right? You're still blind. It's confusing and it's a scary response. um, But I want to point out uh, that there's a couple places we can find ourselves in this story, right? One of which is like the blind man. We are blind from birth, not physically necessarily, but we're blind from birth spiritually, more like the Pharisees are in this story, right? They're the spiritually blind ones in the story. Uh, Paul, the way that he talks about spiritual blindness uh, in the letter to the Corinthians, the second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 4, verse 4, he says this, in their case, in the case of people who don't follow Christ, who can't see Christ, the God, lowercase g, the God of this world has blinded their minds. He's blinded their minds. Now, I think that there is there's a spiritual component to this. There's a demonic even component to the God, lowercase g, of this world blinding the minds of people so that they can't see Christ. But there is also an element of cultural idolatry that holds people captive so that they cannot see Christ. 
I could speak to consumerism and the ways that it's infected even my own heart, our worship, the way we enter into churches, experiences in church, programs in church, worship. I could speak to political ideologies, and you guys know the destructive nature that that's run rampant through the church in the last uh, one to two years, really five or six years. But I think that what we really see as the heart of the passage here uh, is intellectualism. Uh, Now, hear me out when I say that I want to speak against intellectualism. I am not advocating for anti-intellectualism. Don't take that away. Um, But one of the biggest traps that we fall into, at least in churches that have kind of broadly reformed tradition like redemption does, uh, is that we think, like the Pharisees, that if we just have the right doctrine— if we have the right knowledge about Jesus, then we'll be good. And what growth looks like, what growth in our Christian walk looks like, is just acquiring more knowledge. If we just go to a Bible study and learn more about the Bible, then we're walking with Jesus. If we just read a theology textbook and have more right thinking, then we're better in our relationship with Jesus. I'd like to tell you sadly that this is an attempt to put corrective vision on just like I did, uh, like I needed initially uh, in that lecture hall. But actually, we're completely blind. We don't need corrective vision. We need healing. We need an encounter with Christ. We don't need an encounter with theology. Seeing Jesus is not about knowing Greek. It's not about higher education. It's not about memorizing doctrinal statements. It's not about creeds. We can memorize and theologize and intellectualize all day and be utterly blind to Jesus. You know how I know? Because I do that all the time. I walk into service, not here, obviously, (laughs) right? But have you ever listened to a worship song, maybe on the radio, and instead of trying to listen for an encounter with Jesus, you criticize the theology of the song? (laughs) I've done that. Have you ever heard a testimony or dismissed the work of another church or a ministry or a denomination because their denomination just kind of has questionable theology maybe? Can Jesus work there? Is Jesus present there? Can people with bad theology see Jesus? How about the blind man? Did he have a seminary degree? The irony is that the ones who are obsessed with right knowledge in this story the ones who intellectualize and theologize, the Pharisees are obsessed with it, and they're the ones in the story who are utterly and totally blind, not the blind man. Can you see Jesus, or is intellectualism blinding you? See, we don't need to acquire more knowledge about Jesus. We need an encounter with him. This is not a come-to-Jesus moment. This is a Jesus-comes-to-you moment. All right, I want to tell you three pieces of good news, okay? Three pieces of good news from the story. Maybe some of you who are sitting here, uh, you identify way less with the Pharisee than you do with the blind man. And here's good, good news number one. Jesus sees you. Jesus sees you, okay? The blind man, the disciples, the people who follow Jesus, right, they walk right past him. The neighbors forgot his face. The parents are ashamed of him. The religious leaders discard him, right? The story doesn't even give him a name. He's the man who was blind. That's his name in the story, right? And maybe you struggle with feeling invisible. Maybe you feel like the blind man. 
Maybe you struggle with anxiety or depression, loneliness. Maybe you're attracted to the same sex and you feel like, I'm invisible, I'm forgettable, I'm discardable. Even if, this is good news, listen to this. Even if every single person in your life walks past you, Jesus sees you. Jesus sees you. And that's good news. And I'm going to tell you why it's good news. Because point number two is that Jesus does not just see you. Jesus has moved to action when he sees you. And Jesus heals you. So number one, Jesus sees you. Number two, Jesus heals you. Jesus heals you. We have so many things that we need healing from, right? For some of you, you're reeling even from the thought of intellectualism, like influencing your faith, right? Maybe you need healing from intellectualism. I do. But maybe it's real things that are just, you're sitting in just junk right now in your life. Grief, pain, loss. Maybe you're sitting with sadness and loneliness, anger. There are real things that you need healing from. We need healing. And Jesus doesn't just see you. He wants to encounter you just like he encountered the blind man. And he wants to change everything in your life. He wants to transform you just like he transformed him. His aim from the beginning is to heal the brokenness in creation. And one day, one day, he's going to finally and fully come and make all things right. And that last day, everything that you are experiencing right now that you know in your soul is brokenness and you don't want, Jesus is going to transform it. He's going to make it new. So good news number one, Jesus sees you wherever you're at, whatever you're experiencing, even if everyone else in your life sees you as invisible. Number two, Jesus wants to heal you. Will you let him encounter you today? Will you let him encounter you? Number three, Jesus sends you. He sends you. From the very beginning of this story, I hope you saw it, right? He answered the question at the beginning about who sinned, and he directed their eyes to the purpose that he called the man for, right? Jesus had a purpose in mind for this man. He was chosen that the works of God would be on display. And then he anoints the man. And remember, the anointing means sending, choosing, selecting for a purpose. And then he tells him to go and wash in a pool called sent, just in case you forgot. And then twice, once in front of his neighbors and twice in front of the religious leaders, this man is a witness, literally on trial for Christ. He's a witness. And then at the end, he makes the most earnest and honest evangelistic appeal I've ever seen. And he defends uh, Christ by referring back to, the, in that day, the blind will be able to see, right? No one since the beginning of time has heard of something like this. Um, he defends Jesus with this theologically robust argument about Isaiah 35. To who? The most theologically robust people of his day, right? The theological giants of the day. But I want you to remember something the man at the beginning of the story was sitting where? In the lowest place, right? He was sitting on the ground. He was blind. He had a tin can in front of him, or a guitar, maybe, case, right? He was a beggar. This man didn't have any qualifications. This man didn't have a seminary degree. This man didn't go through surge. This man didn't have any kind of training at all. With crew, we're big on, like, evangelism training, and so I did a lot of evangelism training. He didn't have any. He had none, right? And yet, Jesus does not call the qualified. Jesus qualifies the called. 
I want to repeat that. He does not call the qualified. He qualifies the called. And this man was called. And this man was used, right? And maybe some of you are sitting here and the thought of evangelism, the thought of sharing your faith with somebody, of being a witness for Christ is terrifying. And I want to I affirm that because even though I was a professional evangelist for 11 years, essentially, every time I shared my faith with someone, I got that, ugh, that feeling inside of me, like, oh, what am I doing here? But Jesus does not call the qualified. He qualifies the called. And your testimony has to come out not of your theology, not of your Bible study, not of your training, not of your biblical spiritual disciplines. It comes out of an encounter with Christ. And this man had an encounter with Christ that changed everything. Jesus saw him, Jesus healed him, and Jesus sent him. All right. I want to close with this, uh, a quote from someone named Jackie Hill Perry. Ooh, some people like that, huh? Um, she wrote an article called, I Loved My Girlfriend, But God Loved Me More. Okay? And in this article, she says this, In the scriptures, I knew there existed much condemnation for all that I loved and lived. But in the same Bible where I found condemnation, I also found the good news that God loved and died for people like me so that I could live forever. I didn't need to know much more than that. Without a sermon, without an altar call or an emotionally laden music gesturing me to come to Jesus, just sitting in my bed with the TV on and the sun not yet up, I saw Jesus. He was better than everything I'd ever known and more worthy of having everything that I thought was mine to own, including my affections. Can you see Jesus today? Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we pray, even as we're sitting here, that we would experience you in a real way. I pray for those who feel invisible, that they would sense your presence right now, that you would encounter them where they're at. For those who don't, don't know you yet, who aren't walking with you yet, who are unsure, I pray that you would encounter them now. For those of us who are blinded by the different things that we bring into this room for worship that block us from seeing you and experiencing you, I pray that you would encounter us now. We need you, Jesus, so desperately. Would you encounter us so that we might be able to see you, say, Lord, I believe, and worship you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.